Welcome to The Heart of the House, the podcast where we explore the text, times, and trapdoors of Shirley Jackson's masterpiece. I'm Kelly. And I'm Mackenzie. And over the next few weeks, we'll be taking an in-depth look at The Haunting of Hill House. Hi, everyone. So just a quick announcement before we move into today's episode. I had mentioned last week that today we would be covering chapters two and three, which would cover everything from Theodora's arrival to the end of Dr. Montague's story about the history of Hill House. So when Mackenzie and I were recording, it turned out that we had much more to say than we thought. And so we thought it would be better just for the sake of episode length to end a little bit earlier than we had previously planned. So today's reading in the Penguin edition will take you up until the top of page 49. If you don't have the Penguin edition, we are stopping right before Dr. Montague starts with the story of the history of Hill House. So it will cover everything. Um, I believe that's all of chapter two and a little bit of chapter three, but we didn't quite get to the end there. In this week's show notes, I will post a plan for what the next episode will cover and enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of The Heart of the House. It's good to be back recording. I'm excited. How are you feeling, Mackenzie? Um, I'm doing well. Semester is in full swing and we've started to get some listeners, which is very exciting. Yes, there were more than five. Huge for us. <laughs> Unprecedented, literally. <laughs> so yeah, I am Kelly, for those of you who don't remember or who are maybe just tuning in for the first time. Today, we're going to be moving ahead with the second chunk of The Haunting of Hill House. Then there will be a bit of a delay for our next episode, only because I am going to New Orleans, which is something I'm excited for. Have you ever been? I've never been, but it's definitely my top city that I'd like to go to in the U.S. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, as I mentioned last episode, I just turned 30. And if you ever want to feel really, really bad about yourself, when Blanche Dubois of streetcar fame visits New Orleans. She is 30 years old. Wow. How does that make you feel? It just makes me feel angry about the way that, I mean, cause that's, that's purposeful, right? They wanted her to feel old um, in the film, but still brutal. I know you're not a Tennessee Williams fan, right? Um, I'm like a mid Tennessee fan. Like I like streetcar and I love glass menagerie. Um, but I think if I read them now, I probably would have less patience for them. I don't like Glass Menagerie. Mm. Do you know Suddenly Last Summer? No. That's the one about cannibalism. It's so ridiculous. Is it a play? Yes. Very cool. So I'm going to go to New Orleans and I expect to be offered human flesh. Although the cannibalism does not take place in New Orleans in Suddenly Last Summer. All right. So before we get going, I wanted to thank everybody who listened, shared, liked the first episode. Right now, we are only available on Spotify, but hopefully by the time this airs, we'll have expanded to other platforms, most likely Apple Podcasts. So for now, if you'd like to support us, the best way to do so is just give us a like or a five-star review on Spotify and share us with others who might be interested in the weird, wonderful world of Shirley Jackson. So I was very, very pleased to receive some fan mail from people whom I definitely do not know in real life. So the most common question that we got was about the intro music. And so the intro music comes from an episode of The Twilight Zone, which for my money is the greatest American TV show of all time. Both the song and the episode it comes from are called Come Wander With Me. 
Fun fact, Come Wander With Me was actually the last episode of The Twilight Zone that was filmed, but it was not the last one that aired. The last one that aired is the one with the two kids who dive into the swimming pool and they come out on the other side with the creepy lady. It's it's not that great of an episode. Anyway, have you seen any Twilight Zone episodes? I've only seen two episodes, one of which Kelly introduced me to through our one of our seminars last semester about the creepy kid who can tell what you are thinking and make you do stuff, right? Yeah, that's it's a good life. And then the only other one I've seen, I have a vivid memory of seeing it, right? It was, I think it's one of the classic ones um, where she, it's like the pig face people. Yeah. And she is beautiful, but the whole episode, you don't know she's beautiful. You think she's getting this facial surgery. And then they were like, it doesn't work. And then they peel off her bandages and she's a beautiful woman. And what's funny about that, I watched it when I was eight. And again, I have this vivid memory of it. That's the eye of the beholder. Well, I the lesson I got from it wasn't like, wow, like all beauty is a construct and like we should whatever kind of think about it. I was like, wow, like it sucks not to be pretty, even if <laughs> even if what's pretty is pig pig facedness. I was like, yeah, like I empathize, girl. Like I wish I was prettier too. So the lesson of the Twilight Zone going deeply over my head. Um, but yeah, that's the only experience I have. They they air um marathons of the twilight zone on sci-fi every new year's eve and fourth of july and one time i was watching with my dad and it was that episode and as we were getting to the end the woman has her face wrapped up the entire episode and as we were getting to the end he said just take the fucking bandage off i don't even care anymore (laughs) so my dad is not a fan of that one but yes that is one of the classics so come wander with me i chose not only because it's really atmospherically perfect but because the lyrics are also really resonant with the themes that we're going to start see emerging particularly in the chunk that we have for today and i can imagine eleanor sort of wandering around the grounds of hill house singing it to herself so in this week's show notes you will find a link to the song itself and the full lyrics of the song but for now i am just going to play a short clip so you can get a feel for what i mean He said, come wander with me, love, come wander with me, away from this sad world, come wander with me. Okay, thoughts. Very spooky, very haunting. I like it if we're thinking about it as like a haunting of Hill House uh, reflection or a mirror. I like the idea that it can mean a bunch of different things, obviously. So kind of the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, it could be Eleanor talking to the house or the house talking to Eleanor, like them wandering together. But then I think also you could think about it Dr. M as well, like kind of calling these people to kind of take this journey of the mind with him. Um, And also just Eleanor like imagining people saying this to her, right? Like who would ask her to wander with her and kind of that imaginary tendency she has. So I like that it could mean a bunch of different things. Yeah. This episode actually isn't even a ghost story, but it is very much into Freud's idea of what is it? Involuntary return. Oh, yeah. This idea that you're just stuck in a loop you can't get out of. So we're not going to get super Freudian today, but we will at some point in the future. 
So that's Come Wander With Me, performed by Bonnie Beecher, the only song she ever recorded. She's not still alive. She might be. I don't know. The guy who wrote it is definitely dead, but Bonnie Beecher might still be alive. Anyway. So in addition to questions about Come Wander With Me, we also received an email from Ariel and Danielle back in Brooklyn, New York, who had some thoughts about the very strange old lady whom Eleanor knocks down. So they write, Eleanor makes a rash decision to take the car and head off into a situation she knows very little about because of her thirst for freedom. She isn't looking closely, and so we are guessing she may continue to bump into things like the old lady. Or perhaps bumping into the old lady is akin to bumping into reality, given that Eleanor seems to be perpetually in a fantasy world of her own making. Eleanor's encounter with the old lady also helps emphasize her quality of naivete because she's stumbling along in her journey even before it gets going, and even her journey to the parking garage is an adventure for her. She doesn't have street smarts yet, which is suggested by her insistence she compensate the old lady, who suggests cash in the form of cab fare over replacement groceries that she didn't even pay for in the first place, and she's usually accustomed to walking, and then it is suggested that she won't even take the full ride, but rather pocket most of the money. The jingling that you're hearing is my cat who just jumped down. Finally, one of us, Ariel, has a deeper knowledge of Shirley Jackson and pointed out that the old lady encounter is classic Shirley, insofar that her writing often features moments of uncanny in the everyday encounter, such as when simply walking down the street. This easily knocked down old woman with charity items has a sinister quality that Eleanor can't quite see. Can't wait for episode two, Danielle and Ariel. P.S. Like Kelly, Ariel would definitely be friends with Eleanor because Ariel likes tragic female figures, whereas Danielle would be like Mackenzie and absolutely not be friends with Eleanor because she reminds her of a person from elementary school who is so unremarkable you don't even wonder what happened to them when reminiscing on your school days years later. Great. So as you can see, we love getting fan mail. And so apparently does Ruble because he decided to join me while I read it. Um, So keep on sending us stuff. So if you have any questions or comments about this week's episode, you can reach us at kelly at theheartofthehouse.blog. One thing that I want to talk about before we move forward is I did something I've never done before in my life, which is make a mistake. Last week, I told you that Eleanor's mother died when Eleanor was 21. I misspoke. Eleanor's mother got sick when Eleanor was 21. She died when she was 32. As we learn in the pages for today, that was three months ago. So she was sick for 11 years and then now she's dead. So when we last left Eleanor, she was on the doorstep of Hill House. Mackenzie, can you give us a brief reminder of where she was? or what she was thinking at the time. She was not having a great time, Kelly. She was like, well, I got through this gate, which was not a fun experience. And then I got to the house and it turned out that the mean gate man was right. I do hate it. The house is sick. She did not feel grand. Yeah. So we're going to start at the beginning of chapter two. Mackenzie, can you read for us, please, the beginning of the chapter two of The Haunting of Hill House. Here we go. No human eye can isolate the unhappy coincidence of line and place which suggests evil in the face of a house. And yet somehow a maniac juxtaposition, a badly turned angle, some chance meeting of roof and sky turned Hill House into a place of despair, more frightening because the face of Hill House seemed awake with a watchfulness from the blank windows and a touch of glee in the eyebrow of a cornice. 
Almost any house caught unexpectedly or at an odd angle can turn a deeply humorous look on a watching person. Even a mischievous little chimney or a dormer like a dimple can catch up a beholder with a sense of fellowship. But a house arrogant and hating, never off guard, can only be evil. This house, which seemed somehow to have formed itself, flying together into its own powerful pattern under the hands of its builders, fitting itself into its own construction of lines and angles, reared its great head back against the sky without concession to humanity. It was a house without kindness, never meant to be lived in, not a fit place for people or for love or for hope. Exorcism cannot counter the countenance of a house. Hill House would stay as it was until it was destroyed. Okay. Thoughts. She's just very good, isn't she? Like, I think reading it out loud is, like, part of experiencing how good she is. Mm -hmm. Like, even these kind of small phrases, Hill House would stay as it was until it was destroyed. Like, these like, stupid turns of phrases that shouldn't be great. <laughs> and you're like, wow, Shirley. Yeah. It's interesting that you say, wow, Shirley, because you notice Eleanor is nowhere in this paragraph. So the very next sentence is, I should have turned back at the gate, Eleanor thought. So one of the things that we're going to see happening more often throughout the text is dips into an omniscient point of view that emphatically is not Eleanor. So the beginning of the novel, no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. To me, that's always had the ring of the truth universally acknowledged. Yeah. And so I think we're back in that voice here. What do you think of the fact that the house has eyes and a face and all that? Well, I think it kind of speaks to how I feel about places anyway, the sense that a place isn't just the reflection of the people who live there or the people that built it. There's a sense of placeness everywhere. But I think this idea that a house can be evil and it's not about a moment, it's about the character of the house. I think that's kind of quite interesting. Yeah. In today's episode, we're going to talk a lot about the history of Hill House. And we're actually going to end a little bit earlier than I had anticipated. I'll explain why when we get there. But the last thing that Dr. Montague says for today is it seems that the evil is the house itself. But is it? So we'll talk about that. So we have Eleanor moving onto the porch. And so Jackson writes, it was an act of moral strength to lift her foot and set it on the bottom step. And she thought that her deep unwillingness to touch Hill House for the first time came directly from the vivid feeling that it was waiting for her, evil but patient, journey's end in lover's meeting, ellipsis. So the return of the lover. Any thoughts on that? It always makes me laugh, to be honest. I'm like, come on, Eleanor, like get past it. Because it comes up again when we meet Luke, too. Yeah, she's never going to get past it. So here, I mean, she's being kind of quite, I think she's being sarcastic, right? The mm -hmm. idea that she and the house could be lovers. But I think the focus is more on the journey's end, right? Yeah. The kind of she's gotten here and it's not what she thinks and kind of all the beautiful wildness she felt on the journey has to end in this meeting with this house um so yeah it's kind of a mix of sarcasm and despair yeah for those of you who are not fans of the journey's end in lovers meeting you should probably just leave now because <laughs> it's never gonna go away anyway so my favorite detail in the entire novel not my favorite sentence in the novel as i mentioned last time we're not there yet but my favorite detail do you remember what the Hill House door knocker is shaped like? It's a kid's face. 
which is the creepiest of door knockers, I have to say. I can't think of a creepier one. Yeah. I took a seminar with Ruth Franklin, who wrote the most recent and probably best biography on Jackson. And she told me that she was looking at drafts of The Hunting of Hill House. In the first draft, Eleanor, again, whose name was Erica at the time, knocks on the door with her bare hand. In the second draft, she knocks on the door with her regular knocker. In the third draft, it's a child's face. And so to get into Hill House, you have to punch a kid in the face, essentially. And make the kid make noise. That's what she said, right? That she brought up her hand to the heavy iron knocker that had a child's face determined to make more noise. Yeah. So like there's this thing of like silence versus noise. But like you're using yeah. the kids banging to make the noise. Yeah. And there are going to be a lot of children going forward. There are going to be a lot of noisy children going forward. So stay tuned for that. So the door is opened by a character whom you've told me you are very fond of. So can you tell us a little bit about who's on door duty at Hill House? Um, Mrs. Dudley, an icon, my hero, respecting of labor queen. She's like, I will not be here. Do not expect me to be here <laughs> after my agreement. I love that from her. Um, I mean, she's creepy, right? She's supposed to be quite sinister, I think. Supposed to be the holder of secrets. Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with her repeating the same speech mm -hmm. to both Eleanor and Theodora when she comes. But yeah, her, uh, wife of Mr. Dudley. Yes. And all around icon and creeper. Yeah. So Mrs. Dudley, like her husband, is straight from central casting. She is very much whatever you think a creepy housekeeper is, that's Mrs. Dudley. She is straight out of the pages of Du Maurier's Rebecca. She is Mrs. Danvers incarnate, except unlike Mrs. Danvers, she does not have any apparent sexuality. Well, she's married to her husband, but yeah, Mrs. Dudley is going to come and go quite a lot throughout the text. And then her weirdest scene is towards the very end of the novel. And it was so bizarre that I didn't remember it the first time I read the novel. And then I looked back at it and I was reminded and it just doesn't make any sense, but we're not there just yet. So Mackenzie, as a Victorianist, you are very familiar with what Victorians like their houses to look like. So can you read on page 26, that paragraph that begins the hall in which they stood for us, please? The hall in which they stood was overfull of dark wood and weighty carving, dim under the heaviness of the staircase, which lay back from the farther end. Above, there seemed to be another hallway going the width of the house. She could see a wide landing and then, across the staircase well, doors closed among the upper hall. On either side of her now were great double doors, carved with fruit and grain and living things. All the doors she could see in this house were closed. Okay, so we're going to see more of this later. What is the interior of the first floor of Hill House like? So downstairs, it's very ornate. There's lots of carvings. And then you go upstairs and kind of lose that sense of ornateness. Yeah. So Jackson actually drew maps of the house. Um, if they're not in this week's show notes, they will be in next week's because next week's we get more of a layout of the place. But downstairs, we've got the carvings on the walls. Later on, when all the other characters arrive, we'll see the room that they set up as their home base. But then, so downstairs, there's a bunch of crap stuffed full of everything. Victorians loved clutter. When you get upstairs, Mrs. Dudley came to the top of the stairs and turned right. Eleanor saw that 
With some rare perception, the builders of the house had given up any attempt at style, probably after realizing what the house was going to be, whether they chose it or not, and had on the second floor set in a long straight hall to accommodate the doors to the bedrooms. She had a quick impression of the builders finishing off the second and third stories of the house with a kind of indecent haste. So I love this detail. This idea that even before anybody sets foot in Hill House, the builders, as they're working on the second floor, essentially say, let's just get it done and get the hell out of here. <laughs> Thoughts about that? Um, I think it's it, right. It suggests that the house, the perhaps even the land was evil, right? I think the narrator, I forget if it's the narrator or Eleanor, but there's a later kind of um, scene. Oh, no, it's Dr. M who kind of is thinking about was the house born evil? Yeah. Is it an imprint of evil people? Is it the history of what happened here? Mm -hmm. But this seems to suggest that like there is something inherently wrong with either the land upon which it was built or the foundations of the house. There's something inherently evil, wrong, nasty about it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's going to come up again in Dr. Montague's speech. Okay, so Eleanor follows Mrs. Dudley upstairs. And this is where we get the first indication that Hill House does not really mathematically make sense. And we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. So Eleanor goes upstairs and her room, she thinks, is going to be in the front of the house. And so from the turn in the staircase, Eleanor assumed that the room she would be at would be at the front of the house. Sister Anne, Sister Anne, she thought, and moved gratefully toward the light of the room. How nice, she said, standing in the doorway. It was not nice at all, only barely tolerable. It held enclosed the same clashing disharmony that marked Hill House throughout. So I did not know what Sister Anne, Sister Anne meant. And so like any good PhD student, I Googled it. And it turns out that it's from the text of the original Perot Bluebeard myth. So essentially the story of Bluebeard is there's an old guy with a blue beard and a really nice house, but nobody wants to marry him because all of his wives mysteriously disappear. So there are two sisters. Eventually the younger one says, hey, this guy's not so bad, let me marry him. He gives her keys to every room in the house, including one key, which he says, this opens the room at the end of the hallway, but you better not open it. Of course she does. And Mackenzie will read for us from the Bluebeard myth. Having come to the closet door, she made a stop for some time, thinking about her husband's orders and considering what unhappiness might attend her if she was disobedient. But the temptation was so strong that she could not overcome it. She then took the little key and opened it, trembling. At first, she could not see anything plainly because the windows were shut. After some moments, she began to perceive that the floor was all covered over with clotted blood, on which lay the bodies of several dead women, ranged against the walls. These were all the wives whom Bluebeard had married and murdered, one after another. She thought she would have died for fear, and the key, which she pulled out of the lock, fell out of her hand. When she was alone, she called out to her sister and said to her, Sister Anne, for that was her name, Go up, I beg you, to the top of the tower and look if my brothers are not coming. They promised me that they would come today, and if you see them, give them a sign to make haste. Her sister Anne went to the top of the tower, and the poor afflicted wife cried out from time to time, Anne, sister Anne, do you see anyone coming? And sister Anne said, 
I see nothing but a cloud of dust in the sun and the green grass. In the meanwhile, Bluebeard, holding a great saber in his hand, cried out as loud as he could, Ball to his wife, Come down instantly, or I shall come up to you. He has a transatlantic accent. (laughs) (laughs) One moment longer, if you please, said his wife. And then she cried out very softly, Anne, Sister Anne, do you see anybody coming? Okay, great. So I was familiar with Bluebeard before. I did not know that Sister Anne was a character. Did you? No, and I feel like I've read a lot of Bluebeard myths. Like I've definitely like read, I've heard the original and uh-huh. then I read the Angela Carter the reimagining. Bloody, is that the Bloody Chamber? Yeah, and so I feel like I do kind of know a bit about it, but I also hadn't heard it. And especially reading that out loud, I was like, yikes, Eleanor, that is quite dramatic and laden with your problems. <laughs> so I guess the idea here is that a woman calling out to another woman as rescue, eventually the brothers do show up They kill Bluebeard and the younger sister gets the house. So we're going to have more sisters in today's readings, which we will see. So one thing before we move on, Eleanor is in the blue room. Everything in Eleanor's room is blue. Mackenzie, do you have any thoughts about that? Sad. (laughs) Eleanor is sad and blue. Yeah. So (laughs) Eleanor gets the saddest room in the house. She also gets the blue room i think there's a little bit of virgin mary imagery in there there's going to be a lot of of religion in this section we'll skip ahead a little bit and talk about the colors of the rooms the other ones get so we know theodora whom we will meet in just a minute is in the green room we'll get to why she may be in the green room in a few minutes and then we learn later that the doctor's room is yellow and luke's room is pink and so i think that shirley jackson is just having entirely too much fun with assigning colors to these characters, especially the fact that Luke, when we meet him, gets the pink room. I think Mrs. Dudley is also having fun. She like saw Eleanor and is like, sad. (laughs) (laughs) Like I like the idea that she's like diagnosing them as they come. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. So we are about to meet the great and powerful Theodora. But before she arrives, Eleanor takes a look at her room. So, Mackenzie, can you read for us, please, on the bottom of page 28, I believe it is, the geometry of Hill House? It had an unbelievably faulty design, which left it chillingly, chillingly wrong in all its dimensions, so that the wall seemed always in one direction, a fraction longer than the eye could endure, and in another direction, a fraction less than the barest possible tolerable length. This is where they want me to sleep, Eleanor thought incredulously. What nightmares are waiting, shadowed in those high corners? What breath of mindless fear will drift across my mouth? And shook herself again. Really, she told herself. Really, Eleanor. Okay. What do you think about Hill House's faulty geometry? I mean, it fits with this idea that like things are not quite right or even Mm -hmm. that things are not quite rational yeah and still yet they are there kind of before you right because like to have a house the geometry is supposed to work like Mm -hmm. things are supposed to be measured right and yet there's a sense that it kind of nevertheless is it is wrong and it also exists yeah and it's not so wrong that you would go in and look at it and say this is terrible there's something slightly not quite right I think it's either in the pages later for today or for next time where Dr. Montague says there's a series of tiny distortions that add up to an overall sense of wrongness. 
Well, and I think if we connect it to the Bluebeard thing, which like, again, having heard the Sister Anne thing, obviously that's what Jackson's going for. Sorry, my dog is pitter-pattering about. No, Scout. Um, Scout, no. I'm going to leave that in. (laughs) That as long as you don't fixate on the wrongness, the house won't come back at you, right? That's kind of how I see that. The fault of the wife in the Bluebeard myth is that she opens the door. If she had never opened the door, she never would have been murdered and it never would have had to be like that. So there's the sense of if you just, if you're able to look past the wrongness Mm -hmm. and just kind of keep in your periphery, but not think about it, that there's something to salvation there, but people can't do that, right? We always fixate on the little bit of wrong and that's kind of the power of the house and the undoing of the people who visit it. Bluebeard has traditionally been a cautionary tale. You know, if you're curious, your husband's going to cut your head off. But it has more taken on the meaning of Bluebeard as a symbol, right? This guy who is basically bumping off his wives. I also love in the uh, part that you read, she looks in the room, the floor is covered with blood. And then in parentheses, these were the bodies of the wives he had killed. And so... We've got Eleanor, who has arrived in the horrible blue room of Hill House. Mackenzie, what item of clothing does she very scandalously bring with her? Pants, baby. She yeah. brings two different pairs of slacks. Yeah, she calls them slacks. She's not brave enough to put them on, and she puts them in the bottom of her suitcase. Like she's smuggling, I don't know, heroin or something to Hill House. What do you think about that? Well, just in general, I'm kind of liking Eleanor a bit more on this read. I, oh, good. I, I feel like I was a little harsh to her last week. And I do. I kind of empathize with her. And I also find her quite funny. And so I'm happy for her. Like, we all need a nice pair of pants, symbol of moving away from patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we love this for Eleanor. Yeah. And then we have, of course, Theodora. Another icon. Another icon. Yeah, I... Don't like Theodora all that much when I read about her now. So just before Theodora enters, we have Eleanor standing in the middle of the room. So she's thinking, oh man, mother would be so mad that I brought pants, but she's dead, so it doesn't matter. When she stood silent in the middle of the room, the pressing silence of Hill House came back all around her. I am like a small creature swallowed whole by a monster, she thought, and the monster feels my tiny little movements inside. So I talked last time about how Hill House is essentially one giant womb. And so we're getting the pregnancy metaphor here, but there's also idea of the house has devoured her. So thoughts about pregnancy and eating and all that stuff. Well, I think it obviously relates to her mother, right? Yeah. Feeling devoured by her mother's life. Mm Mm-hmm. But also this idea that the monster feels my tiny little movements inside, right? The fact that she should be conscious of each little thing she does so as not to disturb the mother or Mm -hmm. the house is really interesting. She almost frames it as like, I should be silent because she swallowed me, right? There's this weird kind of, it's the monster's fault, but I also have to behave a certain way now that I'm devoured. So we've got Eleanor within the womb of the house, and now we have... Enter Theodora. What's Theodora like? Easy, breezy, beautiful cover girl, right? She yeah. like <laughs> is taking life by storm. Mm-hmm. I think she's like a little bit of a performer, right? Very no, much a performer. No one can be this easy breezy. But I was happy for Eleanor. I feel yeah. like Theodora was equally she like Theodora was responding to Eleanor's energy. She mm-hmm. was like, You need a best friend? All right, let's go have a picnic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, Theodora constantly wants to hang out outside. She wants to roll around in the grass. She talks about how much she wants to have a picnic. I think in a way, and we'll see this more as we go on, Theodora encourages Eleanor to act a lot younger than she actually is. And one thing that jumped out at me this reading, the same way the old lady whom Eleanor knocks down is constantly referred to as little, almost every time Theodora speaks to Eleanor, she calls her baby or a poor baby. So thoughts about that? I hadn't noticed that because I, I don't think Theodora is trying to mother Eleanor. Like, I don't think that's the relationship. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm wondering if it is just like what you're suggesting, like an infantilization or like it's easier to kind of keep someone under your wing if they feel small or babyish. Mm-hmm. It's a very different relationship than like, I feel like there are people that try to mother you and try to give you advice, but I think Theodora's not doing that. So it's interesting. Theodora also brings pants, breezily slips into them. She does not care. We established her last time as most likely a queer character. Remember, she has the lesbian erotic novel, which, by the way, I googled. And you should not do that unless you know specifically what you're getting into. Once again, it's called Gamiani or Two Nights of Excess. And when I looked at the Wikipedia page, it had the original drawings from 1833. And they're quite a lot. Horny. Yes. Horny drawings. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And yeah. So I'm glad I was at home when I looked at that and not at work. And so Theodora brings pants. What do you think about the symbolism there? I mean, is it coded? And then what does that say about Eleanor having pants and putting them in her drawer? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is pretty, a pretty obvious kind of encoding yeah of queer desire yeah so jackson sometimes is not terribly subtle in fact most times she's not terribly subtle for example she describes the sunset as the sun sinking gratefully into the pillowy masses of the hills (laughs) like come on scout stood up at that point she's like what did she say (laughs) like sunset scout or pillowy masses (laughs) Okay, moving right along. We talked last time about what Eleanor would be like when she gets around other people. So you said, quote, she would be weird and mean. And I was totally wrong, wasn't I? I misjudged our poor Eleanor. Yes. She's a goddamn delight, even if she's lying. Like, I would would just think she seems kind of fun. And she's a little bit cautious, right? She's like, should we go out? Like, I feel like we should tell Miss Dudley. But you know what? She's having a great time and I'm happy for her. I think one of the major things, and we see this a lot with queer desire, like, do I want to be this person or do I want to be, you know, romantically involved with this person? So one thing that I think we need to keep in mind is that Eleanor does not have any girlfriends, even platonically. She doesn't seem to. She doesn't seem to have anybody except her mother because her mother was such a devouring presence. And so... Eleanor's attraction to Theodora, I think, is we certainly can read it as queer attraction, and there will be more evidence to that as we go on. But it's also just like, I don't know, a friend. Okay, so Theodora changes into her pants, and they decide they're going to go outside because Theodora wants to find a brook. Theodora puts on a yellow shirt. Eleanor laughs and says, you bring more light into this room than the window. How long have they known each other at this point? Like a full minute. Yeah. So what do you think about Eleanor saying that? 
I mean, it's sweet, right? It's like a kind thing to say, but it's a little intense, right? You don't say that your first day of being pals. Yeah. Yeah. Can you read for us, please, where it says, you know, Theodora said slowly. You know, Theodora said slowly. Up until the last minute, when I got to the gates, I guess, I never really thought there would be a Hill House. You don't go around expecting things like this to happen. But some of us go around hoping, Eleanor said. Theodore laughed and swung around before the mirror and caught Eleanor's hand. Fellow babe in the woods, she said, let's go exploring. Okay. Thoughts about that? I mean, if I was Eleanor, like, I'd probably also be like, wow, what's happening to me? Right? This kind of charismatic person is like grabbing your hand, being like, let's go outside together. Like, it would be overwhelming, especially when you've had no human warmth in your whole life yeah theodora is very touchy there's a a moment later where she basically brushes her finger down eleanor's cheek theodora is encouraging eleanor to play but the way that she's encouraging her to play is not necessarily age appropriate do you have any thoughts about the kind of stuff theodora wants to do well i guess kind of again i didn't pick up on theodora being rich um until you said it, but that makes more sense to me is like this person kind of without responsibility who gets mm-hmm. to have an extended childhood yeah. where your passions get to be your job and like, you mm-hmm. don't have to worry about that. So that seems to me is like a kind of childishness of not having adult responsibilities. Yeah. So Theodore is not saying let's go out and get drinks. She's saying, let's go find a brook. Let's go play in the grass. Let's go have a picnic. She's running down the hill. She says, follow, follow. Eleanor goes after her. Mrs. Dudley gets mad because they move a vase. Lovable old thing, Theodora said to the closed door. For a moment, her face was thin with anger. And Eleanor thought, I hope she never looks at me like that, and was surprised, remembering that she was always shy with strangers, awkward and timid, and yet had come in no more than half an hour to think of Theodora as close and vital, someone whose anger would be frightening. And so Eleanor herself realizes, hey, this is not like me. I am not myself in Hill House. So Theodora is talking about the fact that Hill House is very, very cluttered. It's altogether Victorian, Theodora said. They simply wallowed in this great kind of billowing overdone sort of thing and buried themselves in folds of velvet and tassels and purple plush. Anyone before them or after would have put this house right up on top of the hills where it belongs instead of snuggling it down here. So despite the fact that it is named the Hill House, it is at the bottom of the hill rather than at the top. And Eleanor says, I vote for keeping it where it is. Well, there's a sense that I, I'm trying to work through it. There's a sense that the top of the hill is a place of hope mm-hmm. and victory and kind of basking in the light. And so I think maybe she's suggesting that Hill House is never going to be that, that being at the bottom of the hill fits what it already is. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So we're going to see next time Hill House has an awful lot of secrets. Um, hill House thrives on secrets. Hill House quite literally is built for secrets. Eleanor thinks a little bit later on that, you know, you could live here with other people and never see them. And we'll get back to that. Theodora and Eleanor are teasing each other. Theodora says, you know what? I think I'm just going to leave. Eleanor panics unexpectedly, although it was later to become a familiar note, a recognizable attribute of what was to mean Theodora in Eleanor's mind. Theodora caught Eleanor's thought and answered her. 
Don't be so afraid all the time, she said, and reached out to touch Eleanor's cheek with one finger. We never know where our courage is coming from. Thoughts about that? I mean, again, with the touching and again with Eleanor's intense reaction to Mm -hmm. Theodora leaving. And I guess what I'm starting to wonder, I think you suggested that there's something about Hill House that she's acting differently. And is that so? Like, does Hill House make you act differently? Or does Eleanor doing one thing for herself, like, is she being different because of her own whatever? Which I guess is part of the interesting thing about haunted houses is like even if you kind of conjecture that the house itself has a character and is evil it's always through the lens of human Mm -hmm. perception and human interference so like we actually can't know or maybe we will we will know yeah well so we're not gonna ever know okay um very little in this book is ever resolved but i think with theodora catching an eleanor's thought one of the things that we're being asked to remember is that maybe Theodora is actually psychic. Remember, she was able to name the cards. Oh, yeah. And so this is just one of those moments where, hey, maybe Theodora can read Eleanor's mind, in which case things are even weirder than I thought. I also just think Eleanor is probably not very, like, guarded. I think she, I can imagine her being like, and like having this like terrified <laughs> face when she thinks Theodore is going to leave. So I can also imagine that like yeah, Eleanor is just kind of, kind of quite obvious. Yeah. So the last thing before we get to the next chapter, there's a tiny spooky moment when Eleanor and Theodora are looking at the brook. Do you remember? Is it a bunny? Is it a bunny? Oh, well, I don't know. Yeah, nobody knows. Okay. So... Something moves on the water. Frozen, shoulders pressed together, they stared, watching the spot hillside across the brook where the grass moved, watching something unseen move slowly across the bright green hill, chilling the sunlight and the dancing little brook. So Theodora then says, oh, it's a rabbit, it's a rabbit. I guess maybe it wasn't a rabbit. I love this. Watching something unseen. And it's moving slowly, right? Which I guess is not very rabbit like that's true yeah so that's our first spooky thing and then theodora says i want to come back here and have a picnic so keep that in mind because they get a picnic but not how theodora thinks that they do (laughs) all right so the gayest sunset in literature (laughs) god it's so The sun went down smoothly behind the hills, slipping almost eagerly at last into the pillowy masses. I mean, the sun wants what it wants, I guess. (laughs) Hill House is full of boobs, essentially. Um, And we can see that they're outside it, too. There's an entire article, actually, about this. So they're walking up the lawn, and we meet our next character. And who is that? Luke. Yeah. What is Luke like? Kind of similar to Theodore. He's just vibing. He's mm-hmm. just here because he has to be here. It doesn't mean he's not going to have a great time. Yeah. I was getting some intense threesome energy from the three of them. Yeah. Isn't th- there's the lover's meeting line again, right? Yeah. Um, Journeys end in lover's meeting, she thought. Wait, sorry, if I could back up. There's someone waiting there, Eleanor said, walking more quickly, and so saw Luke for the first time. 
Journeys end in lovers meeting, she thought, and could only say inadequately, are you looking for us? Are you looking for us? There's a, there's a group energy, I think. I must be like the most innocent person in the world because it has never occurred to me. I just feel like they're all fun. They're all being fun, flirty, 30. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So there's definitely a lot of unclear attraction, um, but I have never pictured them as a throuple. Well, especially because like Dr. Montague is such a father figure in a way that is also gross and sexual, but like it seems like it's the three of them as like little school children being naughty together. That's what I was Yeah, Dr. Montague says later, you are three young children bothering me for your bedtime story. Yeah. So Luke comes down, he bows. These being dead, he said, then dead I must be. Ladies, if you are the ghostly inhabitants of Hill House, I am here forever. You never got threesome energy from that? No. <laughs> no, I always, I just. <laughs> I'll stay forever in this house with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> God, I tend to, so. Keep in mind, I teach this to a bunch of 18-year-olds. So um, there's a lot of stuff that I don't focus on. But also, I just really don't care about Luke. (laughs) I don't think that Jackson cares about him particularly either. There really isn't all that much to him. But one of the things that I told myself I was going to do in this reading is I was going to look up all the literary allusions because there are quite a lot of them. And so these being dead, then dead I must be. That's in quotations, which led me to believe that Luke is quoting something. So I Googled it, and the closest I could find was a bunch of Shakespearean sonnets have lines that are close to this, but nothing has this exactly. And so I don't know if Jackson did this on purpose, but she seems to give Luke a misquote. And something similar happens later on with the doctor. So... Shirley is not particularly kind to Luke. And can you remind us what color room he gets put in? Pink. Luke is a pretty boy. Um, he's he's a fuck boy. Love when, that for him. Yeah. <laughs> Very interestingly, something that I didn't notice, we may or may not get to this in today's reading. When they are in the room, all four of them, once they meet the doctor, Luke constantly notices there's one detail in the architecture that he's always touching and looking at, and it's a Cupid. Mm. What do you think? He wants the love. He wants the romance, baby. But also, what is Cupid? Oh, a baby? Yeah. Oh, gross. So I don't think, so there's not much association with Luke and children. There are children all over this house and they will continue to be there throughout the entire novel. But we always see Luke attached to the Cupid. So Luke is attached to the Cupid because he is the sort of would-be romantic hero. But also, and I just love this detail, do you know what cupidity is? Stupid, stupid love? No. <laughs> no, although the Cupid grins fatuously down at them. So it is a stupid Cupid. Okay. But cupidness and cupidity means want of wealth. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Does he need wealth, though? I thought he's already wealthy. He's very wealthy. Oh, but he can't hold on to his money? Is that right? So I think Luke is generally generationally wealthy, but he's also just a petty thief. Okay. Oh, um, yes, I remember. We see him looking in the drawers for stuff that he could steal. So... I just, I love that detail. Anyway, so they go in, they meet Dr. Montague. What's Dr. Montague like? 
That was probably one of my, the things I've thought about most with mm -hmm. this passage is like, we've already gotten the description from the narrator uh -huh. that the doctor is kind of, he's interested in making money. He mm -hmm. wants this to make him famous and to make him monetarily successful, right? And as kind of, not quite a fraud, but as like a, like a huckster, like he's kind yeah. of trying to do this for reasons that are not in the name of science. Uh-huh. But then if I hadn't read that, I don't think I would have thought it from the scene. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I kind of would have thought he's genuinely interested in the haunting and feels himself to be a scientist that is not respected because he's interested in the supernatural. Yeah. And so he's definitely like paternal, like I said, in a gross way mm -hmm. and like is obviously trying to fascinate these young people in a way that feels, again, a little gross. But I wouldn't have thought that he's not actually interested in it and is trying to make a quick buck. Yeah, I don't think that he's completely disingenuous. I don't think he's a bad guy. I do think that Shirley is having a lot of fun making fun of academics here yeah. as people. If you remember, that's what her husband's job was. Um, she very much resented being a faculty wife. Brutal. So Dr. Montague has a beard. Do you remember why he says he has a beard? Because his wife likes it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Dr. Montague has a beard because his wife likes and so he's this sort of plump Santa-like figure. As I was texting you yesterday, he reminds me of um, Plumpy the Plum Troll from Candyland. No. Do you know Plumpy? He's the no. first one. I don't know that I'm familiar enough with Candyland. So I'll put a picture of Plumpy in the show notes. He's essentially a short, fat, squat little guy. Is there significance to, like, we have the term beard now for, like, mm. someone you're with to conceal sexuality did that have the same connotation i don't know but i am reminded suddenly of bluebeard oh yeah there's a lot of stuff going on there i think yeah interesting right like your the idea of your wife wanting you to be a bearded man like that feels like especially because the the rest of the novel is so queer coded yeah i'm kind of wondering does that is that there well one thing that shirley really likes to do is effeminize men um, in We Have Always Lived in the Castle, there's Uncle Julian. Spoiler alert, there's a family annihilation in We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Somebody poisons the blackberries. Um, and everybody dies except for the two sisters and Uncle Julian. But Uncle Julian is paralyzed. So that is her way of effeminizing Uncle Julian. Here we have Luke, who is in the pink room. He's sort of... Do you remember when we used to call people metrosexual? Yeah, that was a bad time. I'm glad we've stopped doing that. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, so there's that. And then there's Dr. Montague, who is completely effeminized. And when we meet Dr. Montague's wife, as we do very bizarrely towards the end of the novel, we will see exactly why he is the way he is. So she totally really makes fun of Luke and Dr. Montague. Other stuff that you want to mention from what we've covered so far? Um, I love that the dinner was great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were like, Mrs. Dudley did an awesome job. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so let's look at that. So we're going to, next time we will pick up with the history of Hill House, which Dr. Montague starts to talk about. But yeah, dinner is great at Hill House. What do you make of that? I don't know, to be honest. Like, they're, the way they talk about the house is the house wants people there, yes. right? Like once it has them, it doesn't want to let them go. It's not, it's trying to scare them, but it's not trying to get them to leave. So there's yeah. this weird tension between like 
that what the house wants from the people. So mm -hmm. like if the dinner's good and that means they're going to stay, is that, yeah. is that part of it? Like, it's like a way to make it warm for the one warm thing about the house. Yeah. So the food is great. The beds are also really comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, when Eleanor lays down later on, she thinks, oh, this is the most comfortable bed I've ever slept in. So Dr. Montague says Hill House has a reputation for insistent hospitality. It seems to dislike letting its guests get away. Another thing that Ruth Franklin told me that changed in the drafts is that when we do hear the ghost's voice, originally the ghost said, go away. Mm. In the current version of the novel, it does not say go away. So we'll see about that. Then there is the room that they set up their home base in. That's where the Cupid is. Do you remember the very bizarre detail about the chairs in the room that they're sitting in? No, I have no Luke complains that the chairs are really slippery and that when you sit in the chair, it's almost like the chair is pushing you off. Mm. What do you think about that? That the chair is pushing you off. I guess it kind of counteracts what we said just before about how Hill House is making it hospitable. I guess unless there's something about being close to the ground you know what huh. i mean like yeah kind of more connected to the house itself as opposed to like the chair which is an accessory of the house i don't know I yeah no, i don't have a thought interesting so richard pascal i think it is i said i wasn't going to get academic but um he's the guy who wrote the boob article <laughs> um he points out that yeah hill house is really comfortable but at the same time the chairs push you off them are you familiar with the wire monkey experiment? No. So it was this experiment. Um, I don't know when it was run, but it was this idea that they had, you know, rhesus monkeys. Yeah. Yeah. So rhesus monkeys, babies whose mothers either had abandoned them or died. And there was a terry cloth monkey that didn't have any milk and a wire monkey, which did have milk. Can you guess which monkey the babies preferred? The, the milky one. No. The non-milky one. Yeah, the point of the experiment is that the monkeys want cuddles. Oh. They would prefer the cuddly mommy who doesn't cannot nourish as opposed to the wire monkey who can. Hmm. So Hill House, I think, is an interesting combination of wire monkey and terry cloth monkey. Yeah. But, and maybe this is the last thing we'll talk about for today, what kind of track record does Hill House have with mothers? A bad one. Yeah. They all die. Yeah. Yeah. Next time we're going to get into the history of the house, but essentially Hugh Crane, who was the guy who built Hill House, his first wife died before she could set foot in it. And so thoughts. Well, it kind of, again, there's this like origin story question of like, and even this, like you mentioned a ghost, but like, is the ghost Hill House or is there a ghost? And then like, is there tension between a ghost and the house, right? If the yeah. house is its own thing, that doesn't mean that the ghost who lives there doesn't have ulterior motives. Yeah. Every time I read this novel, I think something different about the ghost. And when I teach it, the students always want to find out, you know, well, who is the ghost? And every time I read it, I think it's somebody different. That's fun. Remember, whatever walks at Hill House, Walks alone. Dun, 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 dun. Thoughts about that? <laughs> well, I guess that it's interesting because they're all so, such buddies now. Yeah. Right? And then Eleanor at least kind of 
seems to suggest that it's something about the house, like mm -hmm. the house, right? That like this kind of trauma and fear could bring people together. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting that it ends up being the opposite. Well, um, I'm very glad that we ran out of time because that means we, that means I have less work to do for the next episode. <laughs> so have I guessed anything? Have you guessed anything? Have I been like, I wonder if this is going to happen. And then you had to be like, hee hee hee. No, I'm also very not good, not very good at concealing secrets. But what do you think is going to happen? Well, I guess I honestly wasn't imagining there would be a ghost, to be honest, which feels fucking stupid. Or can I, can I swear? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. You said fuck in the last episode. Oh, okay. um, but very interesting that you brought that up. Jackson did not think there was a ghost. Yeah. So I guess I've been imagining the house to be this malevolent for that it's a haunted house story and not uh -huh. a ghost story. I am shocked to hear that Eleanor is going to be mean to Theodora. Yes. That's a shock mean. to me. She she literally says, I want to hit her with a stick. Oh my God. <laughs> Again, I'm warming up to Eleanor. And I think I like that there's like a cozy little quartet moment happening, even yeah. if that is kind of going to end in eventual rupture, mm -hmm. which it most certainly must. Yeah. We'll look at this scene again because there's a lot more going on. But, oh God, the saddest thing in this text, I think. Uh, Eleanor is thinking about herself. She's thinking, I know these people. I'm one of them. I belong. And then she thinks, I'm Eleanor, and Eleanor who is sitting by the fire with her friends. I found that relatable though. Like yeah. sometimes you do have to have that moment where you're like, my friends like me. I'm yeah. here because they want me to be here. Right. Like even having that feeling like I'm a body and I'm next to my friend in the world. Like mm -hmm. I felt like that was super relatable. <laughs> yeah. She, she reminds me of Dobby. Yeah. Like Eleanor has friends. It also helps, however, that they're sitting there getting tanked. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> they're drinking the martinis um kelly's drink of choice yes my drink of choice but luke is not very good at making them apparently any final thoughts or shout outs um before we move on honestly i feel like at this point i'm pro all the characters huh so like i'm pro obviously and i was joking about mrs dudley like obviously she's a terror but i loved her in the story like i think yeah. she's fun and i like the quartet so far thanks for joining me mackenzie or letting me in your house um, yeah, I know. I hope we don't bring any haunted forces in the house. The dog doesn't like me. This The dog is a haunted force, honestly. She's like a gremlin. Actually, Scout kind of is like if Eleanor was a dog. That's very true. She's very off-putting. She stares at you in a discerning, weird way. She growls at me. <laughs> a very tiny growl. Actually, last time we had a different fuzzy companion, um, and that was Ruble, my boy. If Ruble, Ruble's a cat, not a dog, but um, if Ruble was a Hill House character, who do you think he'd be? I think he'd be Luke. Oh, really? <laughs> I was going to say Dr. Montague. I almost said Dr. Montague. Yeah, well, I mean, he does have Luke-like tendencies, um, but he's, you know, chunky and fuzzy like Dr. Montague. Yeah, I don't need to fat shame. He's a charmer, and yeah. he's going to take what he wants, and he deserves it. All right, so thanks for joining us. Bye, everybody. And we'll see you next time.